Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Yes, we're back. We've had a bit of a break, but we're summer all, break. Yeah, we're all fired up for a, a new episode of Space Boffins. I'm Richard Hollingham, as ever, and, uh, and I'm Sue Nelson, uh, sadly as ever as well. But we think this has been worth the wait. Uh, you could say for a, an audio podcast, it's quite challenging to do a whole podcast about images. But we've done it. Yeah, it's all about images and pictures. They say that radio and podcasts, don't they, are about painting pictures with the mind. mind. <laughs> yeah, so we're, we're old radio pros. We ought to be able to do this. I hope so. But later we'll be... Uh... <laughs> it didn't sound convinced. Yeah. No, we have. And, Find out uh, for yourself. No, you will. And and the, the, the our first guest is, is pretty darn spectacular, as are the others, of course. But uh, this guy really does paint pictures. <laughs> He's fabulous. Um, we'll be interpreting the first images from the Webb Space Telescope later on with astrophysicist Dr. Becky Smethurst. And I'll be meeting the lovely space artist, Jackie Burns. It's not just a pretty picture. It's a story. With the first uncrewed Artemis mission ready to go, let's begin with the last great adventure to the moon, Apollo. There have been no shortage of books over the years showcasing the images from the lunar missions of the 60s and early 70s, and they include the famous pictures of Earthrise captured during Apollo 8, Buzz Aldrin on the moon, and that brilliant blue marble taken by the crew of Apollo 17. Well, we're familiar with many of them, but of the 35,000 or so pictures taken, only the same few ever seem to make it into publication until now. Science writer, I should have put a dot, 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 until (laughs) now. Uh, Science writer Andy Saunders has been uh, back through the original Apollo images and using new techniques has enhanced them to bring out details never seen before. The results are published in a new book, Apollo Remastered. Hi, Andy. Welcome to Space Boffins. Hello. Thank you for having me on. Now, these images, just just explain the background to it. They were all captured on film and they are preserved and they're they're kind of in a freezer somewhere. Is that right? Yeah. Um, So when the original film came back from the moon, of course, it's extremely important. It's extremely valuable, but it's also extremely delicate. So they used very thin based um, film so that you can basically fit more photographs on a on a roll, on a magazine, because, of course, space and weight were a big factor. 
wasn't in the digital world where we can take thousands and thousands of images. Of course, this is film, so it's, it's, it can be bulky. So it's, it's thin, it's very delicate. So you only want to handle that once, really. So as soon as that got back from the moon, they made master duplicate copy. And then the originals just went into this frozen vault. So it's kind of hermetically sealed. It's at a certain temperature. And that's to preserve that original film. So for... 50 years, everything actually we've ever seen from Apollo has been based on the dupes, as they say, or copies of the duplicates or copies of copies. And then as we got into the internet world, people are making JPEGs of them and copied and put on social media. And so there's this gradual degradation in the quality of the images that we see, and they're being seen by a progressively bigger audience, which just really frustrated me. But thankfully now, that original film, so this is the film that was actually in the cameras on the moon has finally made it out of this frozen vault and has been scanned to an incredibly high resolution. And, and that's what you've been working with, with this and book. That's what I, that's the, so there's, so there's two sources of footage that are in the book. There's these, these Hasselblad still photographs based on the, now the original film, but also they took a, they called the DAC camera, 16 millimeter small format. People would think of it perhaps as like an old cine film camera to take movies. So that is another source, and that's a source which I first applied a technique to to produce this image of Neil Armstrong that was missing from the history books that has always bothered me as well since right from being a child. I wanted to see Armstrong on the moon, and we couldn't. Yes, yeah, so the only so, picture of him uh, until now, we'll, we'll come on to talk about that, yeah. is his reflection in, in Buzz Aldrin's in visor, isn't it? Yeah, there's actually a few others, like of the back of his ankle and the top right of his uh, PLSS, his backpack and <laughs> that kind of thing. But because he held the camera, all of the images that we typically see are of Buzz Aldrin. And a lot of people don't, you know, space fans know this, but the general people don't know that. How can there not be a photograph of the first man on the moon? You know, can you imagine when we go back with Artemis and the first woman walks on the moon, we get home, let's see the picture. So we we took the photograph of everybody else, but we didn't take a picture of the first woman on the moon. I mean, it's incredible, really. Yeah, well, it's just like being at, if you look at party pictures when you're young and your mum's not on them because she's the one taking the photo. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Yeah. that Um, but to an extreme degree. Yes. (laughs) Now, um, before we get to that technique you've gone to, and and I've seen some comparisons uh, of before and after, and it's quite incredible. It's literally like a transition between darkness and and light yeah how on earth did you get permission to do this <laughs> <laughs> well thankfully i mean as you know nasa's got a completely open source policy um the data whether it be you know as soon as photographs are captured by the mars rover for example it's up there now they're downlinked and they go straight on a server and anyone has got access to them so it's thanks to nasa having this open source policy they are they did this the the scans, they got the original film out of the freezer and scanned them. And so that anyone with the inclination, the time, the skills and the passion to undertake a project like this can get access to them. Wow. And they're happy like for people citizen, to do that. You know, citizen I, space technology, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I send them the images back sometimes and they use them for their own purposes. So, you know, they're happy for people to do this kind of work and showcase this amazing era so So what what did you do then what was it that you did that managed to quite literally shed light on 
previously unseen images because they were just so, so dark or that the detail wasn't there because the detail on these cleaned up images is stunning. I mean, it it feels like you're looking at something that was taken yesterday. A lot of people have said that. It's it's like it was taken yesterday, but the astronauts are wearing period clothing. Yes. (laughs) Period spacesuits. It's like it's quite an unusual visual, actually. So two things, there's the stacking technique on the 60 millimeter film, but on the Hasselblads, like I say, having the original flight film now is absolutely key. This kind of the holy grail, that that, that film and, and the there's been a step change in scanning technology. So the super high resolution and high bit depth scans means that actually you, you, we can now, we've got the ability to lift all of that information that's in that original film out digitally now. So even though they, it's effect, a scan is effectively a photograph of a piece of film. So anyone that remembers, you know, photographic negatives, they, they tend to be very dark. It's analog film. So you can't just scan it, i.e. take a photograph of it, and and it's fine. You know, you need to digitally process that to get all of that goodness out. So that's what I do. The data is there, and we just use software, modern digital processing techniques to pull that data out. But when you do that, they are very underexposed, and what happens is, particularly with these scans, it's so extreme, and, you, and, you, and you're looking at, at the tiniest variances that all kinds of artifacts come out when you try to kind of boost the signal, and it's that that takes the time. So when you, for example, the, the cover shot took about two days to perfect because it was so underexposed, and the artifacts that came out once we boosted the signal enough to see that, hey, there's Jim McDivitt undertaking the docking on Apollo 9, um, but putting that effort in, we're rewarded with images like we've never seen them before or images that we've never seen because they were in too bad a state. You know, they would typically end up on the cutting room floor. We can now see them. So that's one side of things. And then the 60 millimeter film and the stacking is a whole different uh, technique. Gosh. Let's not go into that. <laughs> <laughs> no. No, no. It's but in the that, book for anyone that wants the... Yeah, it is fast. Well, let's talk about the images, though, um, because it really struck me that these were candid shots of astronauts. So, you know, NASA wanted engineering pictures. They wanted scientific pictures. But the ones that really stand out are these yeah. candid shots of astronauts in their spacecraft or, or on the moon or, or doing something. Uh, and without wishing to spread it, conspiracy theories, it does rather, they look like they're from a movie. They're yeah. so cool. Or we've been, we're still um, finishing, uh, hopefully, soon, um, season th- uh, three of For All Mankind. And it, movie or that series, it feels like you're watching something modern. There yeah. was one of, of Walt Cunningham, uh, Apollo 7 astronaut, fairly early on in the book. And I've interviewed Walt Cunningham and, you know, it, he's... He's great. He's one of these larger-than-life astronauts. But it's a lovely picture of him just taking notes in the spacecraft. And everything is crisp around him. Yeah. Yeah, the the photographs of... I'm glad you've noted that because something I'm really keen to get across in the book is to highlight the human side of these missions. We're so used to seeing anonymous, puffy-white spacesuit figures with a gold visor. But when you can see these people... Or if you can see a little through the visor and say, well, there's a person in there and he's on the moon. There's a couple of shots where we can see the lunar module and we can now see through the window and see, for example, Gene Cernan 
piloting this moonship. And so he said, well, this spacecraft looks so rudimentary. Of course, it's 50 years old we, and, and it just hits home. There is a person in there and we were flying to the moon in these rudimentary looking spacecrafts half a century ago. So, yeah, I'm glad you, you've you've picked that up, that that human side and to create this sense of intimacy. And this is the other thing that the 16 millimeter film is very good at because the Hasselblads couldn't really capture the inside of the spacecraft very well. But the 16 millimeter movie camera could. So being able to make that low quality moving images into almost photographic like images allows us to. I want the reader to feel like they can almost step on board the spacecraft, look inside these moonships of the 1960s with the gloriously analog control panels, see these people. Who are they? What do they look like? What were they wearing? What were they doing? I've always wanted to look out the window that they look out of and see what they saw. And so with access to this film and with all the new technology, that's something I've been really keen to get across in the book. Oh, and it's so successful. I mean, you you say, you know, the 16mm is better than the, the Hasselblad for that, but that um, Hasselblad image you've got of Wally Shearer, are slightly unshaven, you can see the sort of window in 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 the background. I love that because he looks so intense and and um rugged and yeah. and concentration it, yeah. it's it's wonderful yeah and he was very ill at that moment as well so yeah they had the a, a terrible head cold it was a a very packed mission and he, he was he was a bit grumpy <laughs> uh, on, on that mission they kind of got a, into a bit of trouble at the end oh yes yes we've, we've mutiny, if you remember yes uh, we've covered uh, that yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so he was yeah, not That's in a great, a great state, I guess. Photo, but, yeah, and now we can see him in in this way, in that moment, undertaking these incredible these incredible events. Let's talk about that Armstrong picture then. Um, I've never seen anything like this. You can see Armstrong's face through his visor on the moon. How would you do that? So that, like I say, I mean, since childhood. I wanted to, I wanted to know everything about Apollo. I want to see, like I say, who are these people? What do the spacecraft look like? But more than anything, I wanted to see Neil Armstrong on the moon. Now, this absolutely pivotal moment in human history, I want to see that, but I, but I couldn't. And we've never been able to because he held the camera and so they're all of Buzz Aldrin. But they did take the 60mm film. And when that was transferred uh, into HD, uh, a guy called Stephen Slater, who you may know. Who's We've interviewed oh, him. He's yeah. featured on Space Boffins, I think, a couple of times. Yeah. 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 So Stephen um, provided me with the HD transfers of the 16mm film. So something I'd seen like on a VHS videotape when I was a youngster, I've always thought I could see a little flash of a face because he lifted his gold visor briefly in that film. But it was incredibly poor quality. When I saw it in HD, I thought, oh, I mean, that is definitely a face. It's quite brief, but he kind of leans forward as he's putting the contingency sample in his pocket. So I thought, even as a still frame, it's just not, it's good, but it's not quite good enough. And that's when I had the idea of, because I was aware of this technique that astrophotographers use, where you actually use film and stack potentially hundreds of images on top of each other and align them and and can consolidate them that's when you can pull out much more detail you reduce the noise you improve the signal to noise ratio suddenly you can pull out new details so i thought well if we can put mars through this technique why can't we put neil armstrong through it so i did 
and it was it was kind of two o'clock in the morning in my office. Everyone had gone to bed. I, th- I didn't really expect much to come out of it, but as I was then processing the output, I just couldn't believe. I mean, my heart was pounding. I, I just couldn't believe what I was looking at. You know, I could see his eyelid, and it was recognisably Neil Armstrong, and it just it was almost like I'd gone back to 1969 and I was standing in that lunar module looking out that window with Aldrin at this momentous moment in history in front of my eyes. And I thought, well, no one's, since that moment, no one's seen this in this detail other than Aldrin. And that had just hit me. Um, you know, I want to do, I was hooked. <laughs> I want to do more of this. I want to find more. Yeah, it, it, that's a, 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 an incredible, an incredible image. And I'm sure that will Go, go around the world once this the book is published people will start will will see that see that that image he looks so fresh-faced as well doesn't he yeah yeah i mean we can see we can't quite see an expression i mean there's another photograph in the book of it's another iconic image of buzz aldrin saluting the flag and they took two two photographs so the first one is he salutes and then Armstrong took another one. But in that moment, we can just, he's got his gold visor down, actually, but there's enough light. And again, with some digital enhancement, we've we've known before that he can just see his face looking towards Armstrong. But now we can see it even more clearly. And this, there seems to be a hint of a smile. So it's almost like he kind of saluted the flag and looked back at Armstrong as if to say, did you get that shot? <laughs> you know. There are also some candid shots of, of Apollo 13 when, when the astronauts are quite literally trying to, to stay alive. And they're, you know, equally just amazing to, to see in this sort of freshness of them. What are your personal favourites? Because, you know, you had to start with 35,000 pictures yeah. to begin with. And yeah. then you've, you know, reduced them to, to those in the books. Apart from the Armstrong one, which, which you know, obviously sent a bit of a tingle down your spine and ours as you were describing <laughs> it. Um, which ones for you have that sort of wow factor? It, like I say, it, it is so hard. It's like picking your favourite child, you know. Yeah, I don't have 35,000 children, <laughs> thankfully. But uh, 35, yeah, whittling it down to 400 was a near impossible task because they're inherently, a lot of them, just stunning. Because can you think of a better subject matter than fellow humans doing incredible things with a backdrop that's literally otherworldly? They're just inherently stunning. But I try to uncover something new. I like the images that have, have some historical significance, something that we can lear- learn from that we haven't seen for 50 years. There are some that just instantly convey the this awe-inspiring nature of human space exploration. There's one on Apollo 16, and I spoke to Charlie Duke about it. He took the photograph, and you can see he's orbiting the moon, and on the horizon there's the command module, another spacecraft, and there's another human in, you know, his crewmate, Ken Mattingly, who's also flying over the moon, and then the Earth has just risen above the lunar horizon, this planet from where the human visitors came from. And it just instantly, they, those just instantly hit you, you know, just what they were doing. Um, so I love those. I've put, got panoramic shots in, so I've stitched these together, and they're great at showing just the, the grandeur and scale of this amazing lunar landscape. But it is the, yeah, to go back, it's the ones that show that kind of the more candid intimate um shots that are like historically nothing's going to top that armstrong image but the front cover perhaps predictably i mean that's got a little bit of everything you know it's an image that was such a bad state that we pretty much never see it 
it's quite a huge transformation. And, you know, it's just such an amazing portrait of a man doing his work in space, this commander, Jim McDivitt. And it's almost, you know, it's quite cinematic, quite atmospheric. He seems to be looking up almost in awe at what he's looking at through the window. But when I researched that, actually, the the reality is even better because I spoke to Rusty Swikart, who took the photograph, and it turns out he is actually undertaking the docking in that moment. And this is the first ever docking in space with an internal crew transfer. It was also the first time that we had people in a spacecraft that was incapable of getting them home because this was the lunar module they were testing and the heat shield was on the command module. So if they didn't dock, you know, the stakes were were incredibly high and it was the first time it's ever happened. And Swikart said, I can't tell you just how hard he's concentrating in that photograph, you know, to get this right. So that's got everything, you know, the cover. Yeah, It is the emotion, isn't it? Because I think as we look ahead to Artemis, there's lessons here, aren't there? Um, for the return to the moon you see now at the moment you know samantha christoretti on the international space station she's become something of a tiktok star but she really pioneered a lot of the the videos on the space station with her last visit it's going to be much more personal this time isn't it because that's really what what people want we want to see the humanity of it otherwise what's the point we might as well send a robot yeah it's perhaps surprising that the public affairs type photography during Apollo wasn't higher up the agenda. Um, I know there was there was kind of constant battles between it was Brian Duff, who was the head of public affairs, and with people like Deke Slayton. And I think Duff's view was the reticence towards photography was kind of a bit of the right stuff attitude. You know, we're rocket pioneers and we're very busy and taking photographs just isn't high up on the agenda. But actually, NASA appreciated the value of photography from Gemini 4, actually. So when we first saw Ed White against a backdrop of Earth, an incredible photograph and the reaction to it, they could get kind of the public on board and get continued congressional support and finance. So it is important, those public affairs type photographs and to see the human side. And you're right, this is human space exploration. We want to see the humans doing it. And this was, a, a sounds, an incredible labour of love from, from your part. How many hours do you, I'm, I bet this is going to be a, a sort of a round figure estimate here because I suspect it'd be very difficult to come up with an exact figure on this. Has it taken you to, to put all this together? Yeah, I, I was asked to try to work it out. Yeah. <laughs> it was kind of two to three years. Wow. At times it was, I mean, I was seven days a week because once I'd committed to doing it, I made a decision I'm going to do it. I had to go through all 35,000. I had to go through every frame of 16 millimeter film or else it's not the kind of thing that you can do half-hearted. You know, what if I miss something? Yes, I was thinking uh, the exact same. I would so have just, had I to can't do this that, twice. Yeah. So, yeah. I, so I just went mission by mission, went through every one. So yeah, it's two to three years, sometimes seven days a week. It's all of, you know, from... As soon as I woke up till probably two o'clock in the morning, I've got kids. So I, I did a lot of editing when they went to bed um, and I could just get on with it. So it was around 10,000 hours just on the photographs and in the enhancing. But then I thought I was done then, you know, it's a photo book. But then it was very important to include the captions for each image. Mm. And this is the beauty of, of putting these in a, in a book. When I, when I started the project, I had no idea what I was going to do with them. I, ju- I just knew it was something that, had to be done. NASA wasn't doing it. No one else was doing it. 
there's no film in existence that deserves this level of care and attention to make it look its best. So I just made a decision. I'm just going to do it. I share them on social media as I continue to do. Maybe I'll give them to NASA as a kind of a catalog and they can host them somewhere. But then the idea of a book is great because when I put them on social media, I add some context, you know, what are we actually looking at? So for the book, I researched the mission transcripts, you know, the transcripts of the voice recordings, the air to ground transmissions to pinpoint exactly when every photograph was taken to work out who took the photograph. What is it that we're looking at? The chronological order. So then we can follow each mission and the whole program from our first views of the curvature of Earth through to our first steps on the moon, through to Apollo 17 and our last steps on the moon. So, and also quotes, you know, from the astronauts, when I, cause I could pinpoint when they were taken, sometimes they'd, they'd talk about what they're looking at. So to include those quotes, again, just adds another layer of context. You know, I want the reader to, as well as the image, to feel, you know, to make this journey themselves. And having the vivid images combined with those captions, I think really helps to put them into perspective, including, I mean, you mentioned the Blue Marvel. You know, that's the most reproduced photograph ever taken. And it's so seared into our collective memories. And we and actually we see it in all kinds of places. You don't really connect connect it to Apollo necessarily. So when you read the book and the captions and you see the photographs that were taken before it and after it, it puts into context, you know, this was a man in a spacecraft on his way to the moon that picked up a camera pointed it through a window and took a photograph of the whole earth amongst the blackness of space. So having those captions just really helps put some iconic images into some more perspective. They certainly have, and it's absolutely wonderful. And I think it's a really important yeah, book, it's, Yes, yeah. it's important. It's a labour of love. It's it's it's. You know, it's superb. Congratulations. Um, Andy Saunders, thank you so much for joining us. The book is called Apollo Remastered. It's published by Penguin Press in the UK on the 1st of September. And you can also see an exhibition of the photos under the same title at the Royal Albert Hall in London between the 29th of September and October the 21st. I suspect we'll be there, won't we, Rich? Oh, yeah, if we're invited. <laughs> yeah, you're invited. Yeah. Oh, thanks, Greg. Good. <laughs> Thank you, Andy. Thank you very much. Well, as we record this podcast, Artemis 1 is on the launch pad at Cape Canaveral. And, I mean, I hate, I slightly hate myself for saying this. And so do I, because I know yes. what you're going to say and I really don't want to I hear it. I cannot get excited about this. Oh, rich, rich. I cannot get excited about, oh, about this. It's just been so trailed. It's so... I don't know. It's it just feels so much going on in the world. You being a space brat. Well, no, <laughs> so much stuff going on in the world, and I just cannot. But get then excited that's why people this. are excited. I, uh, t- I I think that is why people are excited. Yes, we've got wars here, wars there, drought, hunger. I mean, yes, it's it's these are challenging times, and while yes, it can feel like retreading for those who've been through the excitement first time round. Although I was. Too young, I hasten to add, uh, to <laughs> recall too. all I, the detail. I, he added, he added <laughs> to recall any of the the, the detail of, of what went on beforehand in the preparations for for the moon. Um, we know it's happened. You know, we know we've been there, done that. So yes, there is that sort of aspect of it. But at the same time, I'm sort of excited about it. But I'd be more excited about the 
Belfast crude. I, I think I can That's get excited the one about where, that. Yeah. I, yeah. I just want this quite impatiently. I want this to be over, done and sorted so that they can get on with, with, with the cool stuff, which is putting human beings once more on the lunar surface. Yeah, and successful. I think this has got to go yes. pretty much flawlessly for them yeah. to move on Well, there'll on be quickly. more delays. It's not as if they're going to give up. Um, I think they, they will, they, you know, they'll, they'll take their time if there are any issues on this test flight. But, um, yeah, I, I'm not quite as cynical as you, Rich. I'm not cynical. It's just how I feel. Yeah, that's cynical. <laughs> you, you're, yeah. I, I, think I feel like a bit be... of a space fan heretic. So you English. are. You are. Mind you, didn't you get sort of hate mail when you wrote a piece once oh, in yes. favour yeah, of yeah, yeah. So, space? So as, you, as anyone who's ever <laughs> followed me or read anything I've read, uh, anything I've ever written, I've probably written, I mean, I must have written and made more than a thousand pieces. Mm. Must be more than that. Radio programmes, podcasts, actually probably more than yeah. that. It's probably thousands. And I've certainly written an awful lot, particularly for BBC Future. And that and one it's piece. All, all <laughs> pro spaceflight, all pro human spaceflight, all from a human spaceflight perspective. I mean, I've done commentaries on, you know, humans launching launching to space. I wrote one piece which quoted people. It wasn't my voice. It was <laughs> quoting people who said, oh, maybe we should think twice about sending humans into space. Oh, the amount of hatred. Yeah, it's, it's it's funny. It's funny the way some people can't quite get that when you're a journalist, um, you have to represent all points of view. That's a controversial. You have flirted with that point of view, though, sometimes. I have flirted with that point of view because I think it's valid to, because I think you've got to understand that point of view if you're going to be an advocate of human spaceflight. And you don't want to go into space yourself. You see, I have more oh, of an I issue. Have no... I have more of an issue with you having that <laughs> point of view, quite frankly. No, I that's find fine. that very it difficult. Place of someone else. <laughs> no, I want to be in. No, don't get me wrong. I, I'm very clear. I want to be in space. I think that would be fantastic. Oh, you just don't want to get. There, oh no, rockets are horrible. Yeah, <laughs> rockets are really dangerous, horrible, terrifying things. Well, um, I think you have to think of the destination, don't you? But we were we were chatting actually yesterday, though, weren't we, about the um, the G forces that are going to are going to be much uh, tougher for the eventual. Artemis missions when the, the the astronauts are coming back on Orion. They're going to be much worse than ever were for the space shuttle, which was only just over three. Yeah, and the space shuttle sort of came... Yes, the space shuttle came... It's, the space shuttle is an interesting one because it went up. The, the, the G-forces were fairly high going up, but then the astronauts were on their backs. But coming back down, it because it was a space plane, it actually looped and lost energy as it came back into the, into the Earth's atmosphere. So the G-forces were really quite quite low whereas this thing is gonna barrel back from the other side of the moon it's gonna be i think the record uh, i don't have the number off the top of my head but the record is certainly held by apollo 10 at the moment for the fastest humans ever would be the crew of apollo 10 uh so i'm guessing that the crew of orion a future crew of orion will probably come in even faster than apollo 10 Wow. Well, I'm, yeah. I'll tell you what, I'll look up the number between now and the end of the podcast <laughs> and reveal what that number was, what the speed, okay. because I wrote about it only the other day, okay. the speed of Apollo 10. What about that guy who um, 
has a massive sort of daisy track in New Mexico in one of the museums there that I've gone, who's the colonel who did all the uh, um, Martin uh, Baker chairs. And stuff. Stapp, yes. Yeah. He, didn't he do an outrageous, oh, crazy like geez. something like 22G and like yeah, burst his the blood, eye, all the blood vessels Literally his, his eye. eyes bled. Yes, yeah. yes, there was also yeah. him. We, it we won't ought be to like look that. up that number as well. No, okay, I will look up those numbers between <laughs> now and the end of the podcast. Oh. Stay tuned. <laughs> this is Space Boffins and we're in partnership with the Naked Scientists. Do get in touch on Facebook and Twitter and we'll do our best to respond. Actually, I did respond to somebody recently. Admittedly, it was four weeks after he'd done the post, but I did respond and it was a potential story for Space Boffins. So if he replies to my response, and let's face it, he's probably disgusted that I took so long, then... It'll be on the podcast. Potential story by next Easter. Yes, yes. Uh, And you can email us. Maybe this will get to us even quicker uh, because that was on Facebook, podcast at spaceboffins.com. And if you've got any thoughts or ideas or theme tunes for the podcast. (laughs) Let's continue, though, the visual theme. Apart from Artemis, the other big space news of the summer is the release of the first images from the James Webb Space Telescope. They include that awe-inspiring deep field image showing thousands of galaxies, just a tiny field of view. We also saw the galaxy cluster of Stevens Quintet and the steamy atmosphere of a distant world. More recently, we've had that glorious image of Jupiter. Well, I've been talking about the pictures with Oxford University astrophysicist and co-host of the supermassive podcast, Dr Becky Smithhurst. She first saw them at the UK's recent National Astronomy Meeting. We were all in a big room watching the live stream together. There was about 100 of us or so in the room. We were all galaxy experts. So first of all, when they put up the exoplanet, uh, you know, spectrum, one of the, the graph, basically, that wasn't the image, we all went, whoa, and then realised we actually don't know what we're looking at here, which is quite funny. Um, but I think just the, the reaction was just one of being a bit overwhelmed. We've been waiting so long. We kind of knew what to expect. We kind of didn't know what to expect. We've all been blown away, and we're all sort of trying to go back and think okay now we know what it can do like what can we do in our own research as well and so there's so many thoughts just buzzing around our heads you know you you almost want to just take a minute to just you know soak it all in and just enjoy them for just the beautiful images they are and that's so interesting because the narrative has changed completely on James Webb for 10 years the narrative has been it's delayed it's over budget it may not work it's over complicated Loads of people's jobs are at stake here. And now it's gone up, it's launched, it's deployed, and we're getting the first images, and it's a massive success. <laughs> yeah, it's almost unreal. I mean, I remember hearing about it when I first started my PhD. It was back in 2013, and it was supposed to be 2015, and then 2017, and then 2019, and now finally, obviously, 2021, 2022. And it, I think it's been ages, but obviously I've not been working on it since 1995 when it was first, you know, thought up. So I can't imagine how people who've been around much longer than I have a feeling right now, because even I feel like it's been a long time coming, waiting for this moment. And it really is a massive, you know, props to the engineering team that are behind this. You know, what was it, 283 single points of failure during the unfold process? That's insane. And the fact that they got through that and we're here now getting the science images. And this is what us astronomers have really been waiting for. I almost kind of can't believe we're, we're finally here, to be honest. Now, of the images we've, we've seen so far, the one that gets me and the one that always got me with Hubble is, is that deep field image yeah. where you're seeing all those galaxies. Can you just give us a sense of how, how, we do it, how are we seeing those galaxies? How does a, a photon of light travel from there to 
the the golden mirror on James Webb. I mean, it is incredible. Like some of the galaxies in that image, like it is what we call a deep field. We're seeing sort of the the most distant, faintest things that we can detect. The light from which has been travelling for over thirteen billion years in some cases, which is insane, right? And the reason we needed Webb was because on that journey, that light, you know, might leave that galaxy as visible light that we could see with our eyes or with the Hubble Space Telescope. But then it gets stretched out to longer wavelengths into the infrared so that you actually can't see some of the most distant objects in the universe anymore because the light has been redshifted out of what we could ever detect with our eyes or with Hubble. So this is why James Webb was built. It was designed specifically to detect those kind of things, the most distant galaxies. You can think of it as like the oldest light in the universe is how I like to think about it, you know, that's been traveling for the longest. And it's amazing to think that it did reach the mirror because there are so many places that that light could have been, you know, uh, deflected off its path or hit some dust or whatever it might have been and, and just completely sent spiraling in the other direction. So it, it's incredible to think of the journey that light's been on before we then get to see that image in, in all, it's just spectacular glory. And one thing we've been joking about is that it doesn't feel like there's any empty sky anymore. There's nowhere we can look where there's just going to be blank background sky. There's always going to be something in it that it seems like Webb's going to be able to detect, which is an amazing feeling as someone, especially who's really into galaxies as well and finding them and looking at their shapes. The fact that we can resolve these shapes at such massive distances is just incredible. Can you just explain this redshift? Because that's related to the the expansion of the universe. Yeah. So it's like a a, a Doppler shift. So we experience Doppler shifts, you know, every day, everyday life. So, for example, if an ambulance or a police car comes racing past you, it's giving out this sound wave of the siren that you hear. And as it comes towards you, that sound wave essentially gets a little bit squashed. It goes to a higher pitch sound. And then as it's moving away from you, it gets stretched out the sound wave and you hear that as a lower pitch sound. The same thing can happen to light because light is also a wave, except for the times it's a particle because it's got a bit of an identity crisis, but it's also a wave. And so it can get squashed, squashed and stretched. If it gets squashed, it's called a blue shift because it goes to shorter wavelengths, more at higher energy light, like ultraviolet into the X-ray, things like that. And if it gets stretched, then it goes to sort of the lower energy wavelengths into the red, the infrared, down into radio as well. Um, and so as the universe expands, the, the main thing that happens is the light gets stretched out and gets reddened. And actually, it's a really useful thing that happens because it means we can actually pinpoint how far away things are based on how much the light has been redshifted. So um, molecules in the universe, especially hydrogen, it's the most common element in the entire universe. It gives out a very specific wavelength of light that is always exactly the same wavelength or exactly the same color. It's a slightly reddish color. So from how much this, this big peak of hydrogen light that we see across the universe has been shifted by, we know how far away that galaxy is because of that and that's what was so exciting to see we didn't just get the image this deep field image nasa also surprised us with four spectrum as well where you, you take that light from the galaxy and split it through a prism pink floyd dark side of the moon album cover style you know get the rainbow and you see this trace of light so you can pinpoint this redshift and we weren't expecting that and i think that got the biggest reaction in the room <laughs> of astronomers were like whoa it's that spectrum oh, look, 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 how far away is that and they were saying you know this light has been traveling for 11 billion years from this one and this light's been traveling 13 billion years from this from that one and we were all going yeah but what is that what's that in redshift like how much has that been redshifted by does anyone work out off the top of their head you know the whole room was trying to figure it out because that's you know really what we we care about is you know finding that galaxy that's had its light redshifted the most therefore we know it's at the biggest distance I'm guessing then that the image you were most excited about was that one with the the galaxies yeah 
Stefan's quintet, that that picture of five galaxies all grouped together was, was definitely my favourite. It was my baby because this is what I work on. I work on galaxies, how they evolve, and also they're growing supermassive black holes, which was one of the surprises in that image as well, was that there was a big, bright point source of light in the very centre of one of the galaxies that was outshining everything else in the, the longer mid-infrared wavelengths that James Webb can also detect, which we've never had a, a detector in space that can do that kind of detection at that sort of power that resolving power to see such small things and it was just this bright blazing point of light and all of us knew went, <gasps> like that's a growing supermassive black hole it's the light that's spiraling around the black hole that will eventually you know get eaten by the black hole and help the black hole to grow it's accelerated to huge speeds it gets very hot and it starts to glow so much that we see it you know 250 million light years away from this galaxy group and that was the moment that I got I got real goosebumps seeing that because that that was the moment that I was like, ooh, this is my science, you know. We're not just talking about beautiful dusty nebula in our Milky Way. I was like, this is stuff to say, okay, my mind goes on overdrive thinking, well, now how can I use this telescope to spot what I want to spot? And, and you know, how am I going to write this proposal? And what am I going to say in it? <laughs> you think, well, I've got a lot of work to do now. <laughs> I, I know this isn't your area, but what about exoplanets? Because that's mm-hmm. the other thing that you know, yeah. again, this is like a step change in what, what we can see. Yeah, 100%. So the exoplanet stuff is so exciting, I think, just as an astronomer, but also as, you know, a generally curious human being about whether there is life out there or planets like ours as well. James Webb is this massive step up because what we can do now with much more precision and detail than we could before is wait for a planet to pass in front of a star. So another star in our galaxy, the Milky Way. Wait for a planet to pass in front of it take the light from the star that passed through the tiny sliver of the planet's atmosphere and record where there's bits of light missing because something in that atmosphere stole it away. So something like water or ozone or carbon dioxide or methane, whatever it is, just stole away a little bit of that light and we can see that in the trace of light that we then receive. So the spectrum, the graph of the five that was released yesterday was so exciting because they showed very clearly that they detected uh, evidence of water molecules like water vapour in the atmosphere of what was, um, it was a planet called WASP-96b, which is a Jupiter-sized planet, but it orbits really close to its star. It only takes three days to fully orbit its star rather than, you know, 365 like Earth takes. So shows you how close it is into its star. And uh, so it's a very, very hot place. So the idea that you could get water vapour in such an extreme world like that is, is incredible. It, you know, it really sort of says to you, okay, well, maybe water is more prolific across the universe than perhaps we thought. It's perhaps not unique to Earth. And water is that molecule that we know that life as we know it anyway needs to thrive. So if we could maybe find next with Webb something like water in the atmosphere of an Earth-like planet around a sun-like star, that I think that would be you know, a step above to the point where we'd be like, wow, I don't, I don't think we're that unique anymore here on Earth. There must be life out there and it'll definitely give us a better idea in terms of what's the chance of finding life out there. Dr Becky Smithhurst and there's more on those images with an explanation of what we're actually seeing in the August edition of the Supermassive podcast. And while we're on the subject, we should mention uh, that the first Supermassive podcast book is out in October. It's called The Year in Space and includes features that we've written, yay, on Artemis. And mine, One of mine is Women in Astronomy as well. And uh, my interview with Apollo 17 Commander Gene Cernan 
The Last Man on the Moon. It's really good. We've seen the final proofs. It looks lovely. It's yes. going to be apparently on the tables in Water Spoons. Weatherspoons. The tables in Weatherspoons. The tables in Waterstones. Actually, do you know what? I <laughs> that would be better. I, it would. would be it better. would. It would reach an entirely that, new that would audience. Be, yeah. That would be very good. Uh, you can pre-order the book now on Amazon and it'll soon be out in all bookshops, good and bad, everywhere, all at once. Oh, very nice little thing. One of my favourite films this last few months. Anyway, let's continue the uh, podcast. We're bringing you pictures on audio yet again. Well, as Hubble and, as you've just heard, the James Webb Space Telescope have shown, space is a wonderfully visual medium. It's images of inspired artists since before we actually knew what other planets or galaxies actually looked like. Now, not surprisingly, space art is increasing in popularity now, and we decided to feature the UK space artist Jackie Burns. She loves communicating science. She makes sort of space-themed jewellery and is a fellow of the IAAA, the International Association of Astronomical Artists. Now, we're big fans of her bold and colourful work, which you can see on Twitter and Facebook, and especially her signature circles style, which uses hundreds of painted circles to make up a planetary landscape or a moon or a spacecraft. Now, Jackie had just completed an exhibition of her work when I visited her in Essex, so her paintings were packed away in a large wooden crate, which she kindly opened up for me to take a peek inside. There we go. If it's not up on the wall, it's in the crate. And I love the fact that already I can see looks like a ringed planet. Ah, is that one of Saturn's moons? Well, it could be. It's a fumarole there. But this is one of what I would call a conversation piece because I tend to take the, uh, this around when I can to uh, lectures or groups when I'm giving uh, talks. And it's the information contained in the painting because as an artist, I'm not just painting pretty pictures. I'm giving you information, I'm talking to you, communicating with you. And I want you to look at it and take information out of that if you can. So I explain this piece of artwork which has a fumarole mid-horizon and it's spewing steam with steam clouds around it and in front of it it's got mineralisation, little pools. The atmosphere around it is a sort of a, a murky uh, burgundy colour and through that atmosphere you can see a giant ring planet. So all this information is giving you clues about what type of planet or moon that you're looking at. Planets, when they've got moons, you've got gravitational forces which squeeze the moons and that kind of constant pressure, squeezing, gives heat to the inner cores. So this planet is obviously doing this to its moons. It's got an atmosphere because you can see steam coming through it. So it's got a gravity because it, it varies the way the steam moves and the way the fluid is pushing up and then dipping over and falling down. So it gives the idea of gravity. It's got an active mantle inside that. So it's giving you all this information that you can then take away from it. It's not just a pretty picture. It's a story. Right, let's have a look what else you've got. What other stories we've got in here now? 
I can see lots of colour palettes here with blues and greens and yellows. Oh, that's one of your sort of digital circle. Yeah. And I recognise that. That's a, a plane carrying the uh, space shuttle. Yes, that's the uh, NASA 747 carrying the uh, space shuttle piggyback. So when the um, shuttle lands at uh, in California... Because obviously there might be adverse weather conditions up up at Cape Canaveral. And then the 747 will pick it up and transport it back. I've seen one of those actually in a museum with Wally Funk. Mm. And you could actually climb on board the shuttle at at the top. So you could see the airplane from the car park. And then you went up a lift and then went inside the... the, It was, it was great. These are part of my rainbow portfolio. These multicoloured... Uh, paintings. And are these all acrylics or oils? Yes, no, they're acrylics. I tend to use acrylics in a watercolour style, a medium. I was going to say, this actually looks photographic. It looks like the edge of a crater which you've got in yellow with a sort of dark blue green sky and a moon in the background. But that crater... I mean, it sounds an insult to say it looks like a print, but but it does. But that shows the level of detail that you've done. Yes, it's amazing what you can do on on canvas. Um, You've got the weft and the weave of a canvas, and unless you gesso it very thickly and then sandpaper it down finely, wet and dry, uh, to get a smooth surface, I've only ever done that once, just to see the effects that I I could achieve with the artwork. And it was great. I loved it. But it was such hard work. And I'm used to painting on lightly gessoed uh, canvas, so I don't worry about the bumps. And these are also, these are from an exhibition that um, you had recently with uh, all these beautiful colour scape of different planetary surfaces and landscapes. Absolutely. I decided... As a project, I would do a, an alien landscape in a shade from the spectrum, from the rainbow. So I had a collection of seven canvases, exactly the same size, each one a different colour, each one connected to the, that shade of the spectrum. And it looked absolutely stunning. I have to say some of them were a little bit far out there because as a space artist, I like to be able to hook the science and the art together so they can't be that far apart that the science wouldn't happen so I had to be really quite creative and research that I did to say why is this landscape purple why have I got a green landscape <laughs> and here's a blue one here yes, coming up ice world oh that's beautiful and that's several moons, three moons there yes. with icy crevices and what looks like a, should we say frozen methane or yes. would that be a sea? Or well, Methane I'd, would be a different colour, wouldn't it? Well, it depends. When you're looking at uh, Neptune, it's blue. The, the atmosphere is actually clear, but because light from the sun goes through Neptune and it absorbs the red spectrum, so it bounces back out again as blue. It must be great fun painting, you know, something that an area as well that you obviously really love. If I can tell from the amount of rockets and astronauts on your uh, mm. on your shelves, here. we're we're all sort of space fans here, aren't we? We are. When did you first start specifically painting subject matter that was space related? I think it was as a teenager. 
my local library. I'd, I'd read through all the uh, preteen fairy stories and uh, I, f- I discovered C.S. Lewis. And then I was browsing thinking I'd read absolutely everything in this library in the children's section to do with my interests. What am I going to read next? And I picked out this book and it was Heinlein. Robert Heinlein's children's books, and it was Half Space Suit Will Travel, with this amazing book jacket on it. Wonderful artwork. I thought, because I was interested in, in Apollo, I'd followed it like crazy as a, as a teenager. I read it, and I was hooked. And I started a whole new obsession of reading science fiction, and the, the artwork on the books were amazing. I thought, I really want to do this. And I tried. My maths is terrible, so the geometry was wonky. But nevertheless, it got better with practice. And now you've been a professional space artist for 20 years now? Yeah, about 20 years now. Semi-professional since my 20s. Oh, oh I love this. This is the your digital circles of the Saturn V and in fact as you know I've bought one of these canvas prints of it for for our son and it's on his wall and he loves it it's it's amazing (laughs) well in honor of the uh, 50th anniversary of, of Apollo I decided to do this in my circle style and it's a very long and difficult process it's not just painting colored circles on canvas and bish bosh there you are I have to start out with the original either photograph, which I did with this, because this is the Saturn V Apollo 11 on the gantry en route to launch pad um, 39A. And I got the history right, the image right. I then put it through the uh, photograph through a digital app, which did the circles for me in a random way. Once I got that image, I then put it into Adobe Fresco and rearranged the circles in a a fashion which I found... A bit more aesthetically pleasing. Exactly, Mm. you know. It's sort of... Yeah, because you can't have a really big circle which you've got in the sort of background as the sky there. You couldn't really have that on the gantry. It wouldn't work. No, absolutely not. So you have to change the size of the circles and the colour of the circles as well because the different sizes and the different shades of the colours indicate depth. And also the negative space around the circles is an, a very important part of, of, of the, uh, the language that I'm communicating because as the viewer looks at it, it's like a, an eye test. The viewer's brain will supply the rest of that information. And is this the original? This is the original. Yeah. yeah. You know, acrylic on on canvas, on stretched board there. I absolutely love it. But really appreciate the fact that you've taken this out (laughs) of the box for me. Could we go and um, have a brief look at your studio then? There we go, out through into your back garden where you've got a studio. And this is where the magic happens. Yes, this studio has everything that I need. I designed it myself so I've got little shelves along this wall here that holds all the little pots of paint the acrylic in special bottles that um, I can then measure out by drop so whichever colour I'm going for I will always have the recipe for it. I do notice something familiar here and I recognise this from some of your social media posts is that you've been working on some James Webb 
designs using the the, the sort of hexagon of yes. the the mirrors as everybody else was holding my breath collectively with the rest of the the, the world the, the fans as the telescope was launched and then deployed and then I followed it religiously sort of every single milestone as uh, NASA brought it eventually to life the the artwork is is part of how I feel it's how I express that enthusiasm and that hope that um, after 10 20 years of human endeavor to get this telescope the very best of the best up out there and what it's going to see and provide for us by way of information I have to project that feeling of excitement in the artwork that I'm doing it's a4 Yes. sized and you've got different pictures of galaxies and astronomical objects within each mirror are you then going to expand that to a canvas oh absolutely this is the draft so in order to get the right balance the colors the shape the positioning on the paper get that all correct it doesn't have to be perfect but it just needs to be roughly in the guideline and then sit and look at it do I need to change it? If so, what do I change it? How do I change it? And then I upsize it onto a canvas and I'll paint it for real. And how long on average does it take you to paint a, a canvas, whether it's an acrylic or like a landscape, a planetary mm. landscape or something like your digital work? Bizarrely, the, the circles can take a long time because the, the, the digital process is very complicated. And the second process of the digitalization is the colour map because I will make a definitive uh, layer with the colours as I want them to look. And then I will use that colour map to tell me where I'm going on the circles. Otherwise, all I'm doing is painting by numbers, but no numbers. I don't know where I am. So how many days would that take compared to a, a landscape? Well, I did a, a 40 by 30 painting of the International Space Station in the circle style. The digital side of it took me three weeks. Wow. And that includes transferring the outline map onto the canvas. And then it took another three weeks to paint. So that's... That's six weeks, six or seven weeks. And then the varnishing afterwards. And then the, the landscapes? Oh, the landscapes. They must be... A <laughs> I was going to use the wrong expression there. They must be so much simpler by comparison. <laughs> I, I really wish sometimes I could paint um, quickly and, and spontaneously, you know, a painting in a day. And occasionally, when the moon's blue and the following wind is in my direction, I might manage it. But it's so rare. A normal-sized landscape of, say, maybe 20 by 30 or that kind of thing would would take maybe a month and who would you say is your inspiration as a, a space artist oh there's so many out there i mean chesley bonnestell the, the, the you know the, the the grandfather of of space art then you've got the apollo era with um, paul calais in it and modern day heroes of mine or people who have mentored me like david hardy he was the one at a convention who cornered me 
25, 30 years ago, saying, Jackie, you've got to become a member of the IAAA. We will help you develop your art in the way that you want it to go. And he was absolutely right. And I now do the same for other artists. You know, we all have different styles. We all have different ways we do things. We, we, we paint, we model, we sculpt, we, we sew, we, we compose. But we all need help from our colleagues, whether it's a little bit of science or I'm having issues with this kind of new media that I'm working. Anybody else done this? Who knows how to airbrush? What am I doing wrong? All of that. It's a huge community that will come together and say, I can give you a hand with that. It's not a problem. Space artist. Jackie Burns. That and, was great. Yeah. And, yeah, it's lovely. It's lovely to be out as well. <laughs> and apart from the James Webb inspired painting, she's currently also preparing a huge portfolio for the World Science Fiction and Fantasy Convention, um, which takes place in different parts of the world every every year. But in 2024, it's going to be taking place in the UK in Glasgow. And uh, we heard her talk then about the painstaking space station circles painting painstaking in terms of the the time and effort it took well um it's not exactly a bombshell but we can confirm that this one is definitely off the market because (laughs) we bought it and uh it's now up in our office and it's you love it don't you oh i think it's fantastic yeah i mean you say it's up in the office that's more wishful thinking it's in the office it will be up in the office by the time this podcast gets up yeah, it yeah. will definitely. It it's been sort of we need, stacked we need a drill and a raw plug. We do, yes. <laughs> oh, it's just so wonderful. We'll put photos of it up on um, Facebook and Twitter. And if you want to see Jackie's work, she's also on Facebook and also on Twitter. On Twitter, she's at artist burns and that space boffins do get in touch in all the usual ways uh, in answer to our earlier questions uh, apollo 10 uh, speed coming back to earth 39,937 kilometers per hour that's 24,816 miles per hour which makes tom stafford gene cernan and john young the fastest humans in history tom stafford is still around and uh john stapp in 1954 he endured 20 g's 20 20 g's thanks for listening <laughs>